0: From the McCourtney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on
1: the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam, and this is Democracy Works. Uh, Michael, today we have um, a a guest who represents one of the newest initiatives here on uh, the campus at Dear Old State, Chris uh, Witko is the associate director of the, uh, the new public policy school. Brand
0: new school. They're recruiting their first class right now. Yeah,
1: it's very exciting. And, it is. and the other point of pride for Chris is that he is the uh, author, co-author of a, of a new book, uh, The New Economic Populism, How States Respond to Economic Inequality. A timely piece of work. Well, and one that we've kind of also already kind of uh, addressed in some, in some other um, recent podcasts.
0: I remember how much we used to talk about inequality during the 2016 presidential campaign.
1: Right, right. And, uh, and how- uh, and But why. not so much anymore. <laughs> well, you know, the underlying realities of inequality are still out there, still present. The top 1% of Americans um, control 40% of the wealth and earn 24% of the income. That is, a, that is a dramatic thing to say. I actually feel like it's worth just kind of framing these questions in 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 the broader kind of context that we've brought up before, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, on the one hand— You know, a democracy demands equality, political equality of everybody having one vote. On the other hand, it demands the freedom to go out and earn as much money as you can. And these are these are difficult things to put together. Right. Because that's going to inevitably lead to inequality. Right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And and, you know, you can go back all the way to Aristotle, who, you know, who argued that the best um, the best politics was between rule of the wealthy and rule of the poor that neither one of these were sustainable for or in the best interest of the society as a whole and that you needed um, a strong middle class because these were the people who were you know doing the work of making society and the economy go and who were invested in um, the well-being of the of the society at large and and so you know, the idea or, or where you find the right balance between equality and inequality is one that any society, and particularly any democracy, must grapple with. And in the American
0: case, uh, Madison talked quite a bit about inequality in his own way in uh, Federalist 10 when he... he when he was talking about factions and conflicts mm-hmm, among factions mm-hmm. and, and identified that the primary source of these conflicts was going to be between those who own land and those who don't and those who have lots of wealth and, and those who don't. I mean, it's been long
1: recognized that this is a, a major source of political conflict. This perennial problem. For, uh, for for politics in a democracy, and we are at an exigent moment right now because inequality is so high. Yes, and
0: and and what I think they do uh, very interestingly in this book is to take that argument and move it from the federal level down to the state level, mm-hmm. and and I think this is interesting for for a couple of reasons. I mean, one uh, one is the argument that. The federal government is incapable of acting in a sort of polarized gridlock state, and so it's not going to act on inequality. Polarization may lead to to that or or it may not, but but it's also that you you don't usually think that the state governments are the most efficient place to be doing uh, redistribution. There are theories of fiscal federalism that, that try to make arguments about where is the best place to locate different types of political economic activity. And uh, usually the federal government is seen as the best place to do redistribution, in other words, moving wealth from those who have lots to those who have less, uh, because both capital and labor, because capital, labor, and voters are mobile. And, And so when states get into the practice of it, then you run the risk of both attracting people who are poor because... Uh, where, where they become, in effect, magnets because they may have generous redistributive policies and also because it may turn away uh, capital and investment because they can always move to places, move to states that have lower taxes and uh, less that are less aggressive about redistribution. And, 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 and what the, they're doing in this book is they're turning that on their head and saying, well, actually, it's at the state level, not necessarily where it's the most efficient place to do this,
1: but where, where we are seeing activity. For the most part, um, many of these issues have been have been sent down to the state level by default. And the other argument is that you know states are precisely because they're smaller, you know, um, they can be laboratories of democracy. In, in Brandeis's f- famous um, yeah, know, so they can they
0: can try things and then other Correct. states might
1: pick it up. So I, I think we have um, set the table sufficiently. So um, this, I mean, again, this is. This is a really a uh, great opportunity for us to hear from an expert to talk about, um, you know, policy initiatives that are operative right now that address these, these, these uh, perennial problems of democracy. Well, let's bring them on. Perfect. Okay.
2: Right. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with Chris Whitco. Chris, thanks for joining us.
3: Thank you. It's great to be a part of this award-winning podcast.
2: Oh, flatter. That's always always <laughs> a good place to start. Yes. Uh, so there's there's a lot to unpack here when it comes to income inequality and democracy. Um, I thought maybe we could start by just uh, talking a little bit about why these things are why these two things are so closely linked.
3: Yeah, so you can go back uh, really thousands of years at this point back to Plato and and things like that where people have looked at the relationship between inequality and democracy and whether these things are are really compatible. Um, Of course, we're going to have some inequality in a capitalist system, but when we have a democratic political uh, system that assumes some level of equality. There's a concern that when you have really extreme levels of economic inequality, that it undermines that idea of some measure of political equality. So that's been something scholars have been talking about for a very long time.
2: Mm-hmm. And it, some of the people writing more recently about the, the problems of, of democracy in the U.S. in particular have said that you can't, we can't start to fix what's, what's wrong with democracy until we address this issue of, of inequality. Do, do you agree with that?
3: Yeah. I mean, you look at the extremes of wealth uh, inequality and stuff, and then people who have a lot of money can take that money and use it in politics. And we saw that in the Gilded Age. We see that now. So it does probably lead to unequal influence. And that's what those people are referring to. So I absolutely agree with that.
2: Do, do you think that we're in a second Gilded Age? I know that's often talked yeah, about as well. I mean,
3: um, you know, Larry Bartels had a book out a few years ago, The, New, the Politics of the New Gilded Age, and, and it's there's a lot of similarities if you look at it um, in terms of the inequality in the economy and how that translates over into politics, definitely.
2: So who's, whose job is it to fix this this problem of, of inequality?
3: Well, that's a good, that's a good question. Um, in the U.S., we tend to think that the public you know, is not that concerned about inequality, and that's certainly true compared to Europe. But actually, there's been a lot of survey data. We, we talk about some of it in the book um, about uh, that the public really is concerned about inequality, and they really do want the government to do something to fix it. You know, in the U.S., which level of government and how do we actually go about fixing it? Those are pretty dicey issues. But really, people are concerned about growing inequality, and they, they they would like it to be lessened.
2: In your book, you also mentioned something called the the policy drift. Can you explain what that is and how it ties into this situation? Yeah,
3: policy drift is an idea that um, people like Jacob Hacker and Paul Pi- Pearson write about that in their uh, book on – kind of look at, at national level politics and inequality. And that's just the idea that policies that we put in place decades ago, they might have worked really well at that time. But then as economic conditions change, they don't work anymore. And if we don't update them, then they're not going to serve us well. If you uh, enacted the minimum wage in the 1930s, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was like $2 an hour. Imagine if, imagine if that had never been updated wow, the purchasing power of $2 an hour would really be less than it was in the 1930s. And actually, we've seen that at the federal level with the federal minimum wage. If you look at the 1960s, in real terms, the minimum wage was about $12 an hour. And through inaction, you know the policy hasn't changed at all. Policy is exactly the same. But, of course, inflation eats away at the amount, the, the value of the minimum wage. So if we don't adjust policy to the changing economic circumstances, then the policy doesn't work as well as it did when it was enacted.
2: Mm-hmm. And that also ties into uh, political polarization as well, you you argue uh, in your book. Is that right?
3: Yeah, well, polarization um, is obviously a, a big issue, you know, in Congress. And what it, one important implication for inequality is it just prevents much of anything from getting done. So if we need to change policies and update policies to address changing economic conditions, then polarization just makes that much harder. Mm-hmm.
2: So so what what's the disconnect then if there, you know, if, if public opinion really does support action on these issues, why why can't why doesn't that that translate into to something kind of moving forward?
3: Well there there's I mean the polarization is that's preventing a lot of pretty much anything. Um, getting done, but also some of the things we talked about a second ago, where you have big business and the wealthy have just a lot of influence in politics. So that makes it really hard to get any type of egalitarian policies enacted in Washington, D.C.
2: Mm-hmm. Going back to, to that that public opinion, opinion idea again, is there, where does the kind of notion of this uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps type of type of mentality fit in in terms of how how much of a problem people think inequality actually is?
3: Yeah, I think, um, you know, that's kind of the idea behind the American dream that if you just work hard, you'll you'll get ahead and and everything will be fine. And certainly Americans have uh, they tend to blame individuals more than the system for things like poverty and unemployment and stuff like that. That's true. But I think it's also the case that that You know, even even considering that now people are more concerned about inequality. We saw the um, you know protests against the Occupy Wall Street and stuff Mm -hmm. like that. There's been politicians talking more and more about this in recent years. Um, That hasn't necessarily led to any real federal policy action, but uh, it is something that even with that kind of American ideology of of uh, pull yourself up by your bootstraps, people are still uh, aware of and concerned about inequality.
2: So it seems some of the, the the solutions that states and others have taken to to try to address some of these issues that come from either. Uh, one of two things: either you can try to raise the floor, right, through through minimum wage or, or, or things like that, or you can try to kind of take take from the top in terms of how how much the the wealthy kind of the you know top levels of, of uh, income are are taxed. What what has been which which of those those approaches has proven to be more successful, or which do you think is is kind of more feasible looking at over the long term?
3: Well, if you look at tax increases, um, you know states like California. Um, have, have enacted tax increases on the wealthy in recent years. That's not something that is going to be popular in all places because that's, let's face it, it's a liberal policy. You start looking at things like the minimum wage, which would boost the income of low wage workers. That's just really popular basically everywhere. So we've seen even conservative states like Missouri and South Dakota have had uh, their minimum wages go up via the initiative process, which is where the public gets to directly vote on policy. So when these things come up for a vote, they almost invariably pass, minimum wage increases in particular. Mm
2: -hmm. And that also speaks to something else that's in your book about – you describe it as using the tools of democracy to fight inequality. Can can you – Um, tell us what that means.
3: Yeah. Well, what we find in the book and there's been some other research to this effect. But if if you one thing that we do have in the states, which we don't have in Washington, D.C., is direct democracy and direct democracy. It is a mixed bag. There's no question about it. It, it. What it does is it enhances the ability of the majority to see their policy preferences enacted. Now, sometimes those can be absolutely terrible, pol- well, from my perspective, terrible policies that would like restrict the rights of minorities, for instance. But if you think about it in an economic situation where the wealthy are getting wealthier and the elected officials are, I don't want to say owned by the wealthy, but you know, heavily influenced by the wealthy, um, the initiative is a way where you can circumvent the interest groups to some degree and get around those incentives facing elected officials and the public is able to Directly affect policy. Um, So what we, you know, and other researchers have found this as well, is that policy is more in line with public preferences in states that have the initiative option. So we're seeing some of this in inequality, where particularly we're seeing this with the minimum wage uh, increases in a lot of states, which we talk about in the book.
2: And so if if enough of these states kind of take action, whether it is on on minimum wage or through the earned income tax credit, which you also mentioned in your book, is is there a point at which there would be like a, a tipping point to to sway action at the at the federal level?
3: Yeah, I mean, we've seen that in the past, you know in in different eras. We talk in the book about things like the Progressive era. What we saw at the, in that time period was a lot of the, state policy innovations that were happening, they were eventually adopted uh, by the federal government. And once you do have a situation where, you know, a lot of states have a $10, 11 $12 minimum wage, at that point, there just should be naturally less opposition to it at the federal level because a lot of businesses, particularly in the larger states, have kind of already uh, adjusted to that level of wage.
2: Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about what the earned income tax credit is and, and, and how that fits into this solu- kind of suite of, of solutions that, that states are looking at to solve inequality?
3: Yeah. So the earned income tax credit is it's actually one thing that is more difficult with the earned income tax credit to kind of get the public behind it. I guess you might say bigly is that um, it is extremely complicated. <laughs> so uh, to put things just keep things fairly simple. Um, Basically, it's a a tax credit that comes back to workers who don't earn a lot of money. So you can actually end up getting cash back from the government when you file your uh, tax return. So that was something a little bit different from the minimum wage where the minimum wage was actually pioneered by the state governments with the earned income tax credit. That's something that's actually was started at the uh, federal level and then has proliferated down to the states, and now the states are um, doing more to expand their earned income tax credits. Uh, we 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 talk about that in the book. Um, that's something that you you kind of ask the public about it, and we you know they're kind of like, what what's that? But it tends to be something at least until very recently it was something that was supported by both liberals and conservatives, elected officials. Uh, so it's a it's another policy tool that you can use in a more conservative area, where maybe you don't want to increase taxes on the wealthy, but you want to bring up the incomes of lower income workers.
2: Sure. Um, so you're the 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 title of your book is called the the new economic populism. Can you talk about how populism fits into to this this inequality conversation?
3: Yeah. Well, if you look at um, I think in two ways, in a couple of ways. First, the public is concerned about inequality. If you look at survey data, the second thing is a lot of the policies that would actually address inequality or that we've used in the past to reduce inequality are actually really popular with the public. Uh, minimum wage increases, actually tax increases on millionaires and billionaires—that's something that's very popular with the public. Um, so, what we're just simply saying is these are these are you know, policies that a majority of the people want. And we're not really getting them in Washington, D.C. due to the political dynamics uh, there. But some of the states are, are actually doing this. Mm-hmm.
2: So looking back at the, you know, the thinking about things like um, the New Deal, the, the Great Society, was what was it a, about kind of the the political climate at those points in history that let these kind of large scale changes you know, kind of move forward and and what are you know some some of the barriers to those those types of sweeping reforms passing
3: today Yeah yeah that's a great question I well so part of the the new economic populism in the title what's what's new I guess is that the states are um doing things that we kind of expected the federal government to do since the Great Society. But if you go back to the New Deal, the New Deal itself was the result, really, most of the policies that were part of the New Deal, the the minimum wage and unemployment insurance and expanded workers' rights, those had all really been pioneered at the state level um, decades before. So, of course, you know what, what happened during the New Deal is kind of a unique set of circumstances. You had a massive congressional majority of Democrats, Franklin Roosevelt, terrible economy. And uh, so people were, were ready for action. I don't think we're going to, you know, we don't want to have another Great Depression. We, we don't want to replicate that, those political conditions. And then, you know, in the 60s, that was really the one time in American history where we really did see the, the federal government kind of pioneering new policies to address uh, problems. And we're 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 not seeing that, and part of that is again you have the the influence of the wealthy in politics in Washington D.C., which is you know similar in some states, but not as great in other states. So the states have more uh, room for action. Um, You have the massive polarization in Washington D.C., which prevents anything from getting done. So uh, do I? I don't think this is going to change very much in the short term. I think the the goal would be that some of what's happening in the states uh, over the long term can kind of trickle up to the federal government, so that when this kind of fortuitous set of circumstances does take place, uh, the policies are ready to go, and we kind of know what to do.
2: Mm-hmm. So, for for people out there who who are concerned, small D Democrats, uh, short of uh, you know ballot ballot measures that may or may not come up in their states, are there there are other things people? can do to, to try to, in their own way, make, make progress on some of these issues?
3: Absolutely. I think, um, I mean, in other research that I've done with, with Bill Franco and Nate Kelly, we we have a paper that shows that voter turnout is really important to the types of policy. So if you have um, class bias in voter turnout, you, you have more uh, unequal policies and more inequality. So people need to vote. And so people that uh, are concerned about democracy, number one, is they need to uh, be supporting organizations that are fighting attempts to limit voting rights uh, by, by people. Um, of course, you should vote yourself. Uh, you know, me voting in, you know, as a PhD, that's not necessarily going to change things very much, but we need to do more to kind of mobilize lower income voters. So any supporting organizations to make that happen is a, is a good idea.
2: Is there any type of of ideal that, that we should be looking for?
3: Well, no, I, I and that's always dicey, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't think we can specify a mathematical point at which, OK, we're good. And, you know, within two percentage of point, points of this, it's it's bad. And, and that's frankly, that's part of the danger of, of this situation is you never know when things have gotten too extreme and when that tipping point has been reached. Um, so I think we need to take this seriously before we, we we definitely know we're there. I don't think anybody wants pure economic equality, you know. I know I deserve to be paid much more than most of the people I work with, and I'm sure you feel all the, all the same. I'm kidding, of course. Um, so nobody's really sitting here wanting, uh, wanting economic equality. But what we also don't want is extreme, extreme inequality, which... Is corrosive to democracy. It's very corrosive to society. You can go back in history and look um, at places that have uh, extreme levels of of inequality, and you don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's what we're talking about. We don't want everybody to earn the same. I mean, I don't think very many Americans would support everybody earning the same income or pure equality, and that's not going to happen. But just avoiding extremes of inequality is the goal.
2: Going back to to minimum wage it's one thing to to kind of uh, you know raise it to twelve dollars or you know fifteen dollars an hour but then you know of course with with inflation prices are, are going to, to continue to rise and given all of this, you know, polarization and gridlock, there's a chance it might not ever go up again, right? So how, how can states kind of reconcile with, with that?
3: Well, you've seen um, some states have begun to index their um, minimum wages so that it will go up each year, you know, um, either at the rate of inflation. Or the rate of personal income growth, or, or something like that. So, and that's a way to get drift basically to work on behalf of preserving more equality uh, as opposed to working against it. Mm-hmm.
2: And there's also, you um, know, do you want to talk about healthcare at all? I'm just thinking about like not just not just the the money that you earn, right? It's about what you spend it on, and you know, what role do things like the the Affordable Care Act and some of the other kind of more drastic proposals like Medicare for all? Mm-hmm. How how do those things factor well, in
3: here? The the Affordable uh, Care Act is actually quite interesting because it is one of the few real major, I guess, egalitarian policies that we've seen enacted you know, in, in D.C. in recent years. And it's what we saw actually in this past election cycle and in the past few years, again, in initiative states where this thing gets on the ballot, expanding Medicaid, um, it's passed in um, Idaho, for instance, was one of the places where this uh, passed in 2018. And so the there's some problems with how the ACA was designed uh, you know it could have been stronger and, and this and that and the other thing. but we're seeing a similar logic where states are of course liberal states you know expanded Medicaid right away, but even some of the more conservative states have done so through the particularly through the initiative uh, but in some some cases not even through the initiative mm-hmm. so.
2: Last season on our show, we did we had an episode all about campaign finance. We interviewed Caroline Hunter, the the chair of the the FEC. And I'm wondering um, if you think that we can really do anything to move forward on addressing inequality without kind of talking about the current state of campaign finance and the influence of of money in, in politics.
3: Yeah, I I think. Stricter camp. Personally, I think stricter campaign finance laws would would probably be a good thing. And I've found in my research that there's actually less bias towards organizations representing the business uh, community in states that have stricter campaign finance laws. So I do think that would be a good thing. The pro the problem is right now the Supreme Court and a lot of state courts are really against regulating money in politics. Okay. So in the meantime, what do we do? I mean, I think the other thing we can do, since we really can't very easily limit the the infusion of money from big business and the wealthy into politics, one other option is to just try to increase money from other voices into the system.
2: We've certainly seen people like Beto O'Rourke as you know, kind of one example of somebody who was able to, I think maybe you know, change the the not only for his own campaign, but it seems like he's also putting into place some kind of longer-term infrastructure changes to try to change how people donate or you know make it easier for people to, to register to vote. Yeah, we've like
3: seen we've seen a lot of that. I think really probably going back to Howard Dean mm-hmm. is where a lot of this kind of started, and and it's been. You know that we've seen a lot of politicians raise a lot of money from just individual donors in recent years. And the thing with the the money, I mean, to win elections, you don't need to necessarily outspend the other person. You just you just need to be in the game. Um, so there's other sources of money, and it's and it's the same thing with lobbying. With the First Amendment, we really can't prevent. I mean, when you have millions of dollars on the line, businesses are gonna gonna lobby, and there's really nothing you can do to prevent that we have the First Amendment. Um, we wouldn't want to prevent that. But what we should be, again, trying to do is building up other voices into the system, advocates for the poor, advocates for workers, and, and things like that. And that should probably be the main focus of, re, of reform efforts, because even if you eliminated campaign contributions from business and the wealthy, you're still going to have them lobbying, and, and there's nothing that's going to ever change that.
2: Well, Chris, we're going to end today, as we always do, with our four Mood of the Nation poll questions. Uh, So four things um, thinking specifically about American politics. Um, First up is uh, what makes you angry?
3: Inequality.
2: (laughs) Good answer. Uh, What makes you proud? Football. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What makes you worry?
3: Inequality.
2: (laughs) And then finally, what gives you hope?
3: the Democracy Works podcast.
2: Oh, you want to try one more that's not quite so uh, patting us on the back?
3: Um, I think I think the fact that there's, there's a lot of new blood in politics. If we look at the 2018 elections, we've had a uh, lot more women uh, running for office and winning. People from diverse backgrounds and underrepresented groups are going to have a bigger voice in Washington, D.C., and I do think in the long term that's going to... Going to make things better.
2: All right. Well, we will leave it there, Chris. Thank you so much for joining us today. All right.
3: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. All right. Well, that was
1: excellent. Really good answers and really good questions too. So um, a lot to chew on there. Um, the the one thing that I that I wanted to mention uh, that I found thought uh, reflected something in a podcast that we had pretty recently. Um, with um, our colleague John Gastel and uh, Robin Teeter from Healthy Democracy was um, their efforts to um, kind of democratize or maybe re-democratize the initiative process. And I think both of us um, uh, reflected this this attitude about demo- uh, about the initiative process, that it has been taken over and that it's not very democratic and that we don't advocate for more of it. But what Chris was saying was that this was one mechanism that uh, was most effective at the state level of uh, bringing more equality into the society, that, that it, it made it possible for raising the minimum wage and things like that that uh, were unlikely or less significantly less likely to get through any other way.
0: Uh, yes, Chris, uh, well, we saw this in the recent election, actually. There were some important outcomes and referendums that speak directly to what Chris is mm-hmm. talking about. There were three states, I believe three three states controlled by Republican uh, by Republican uh, office holders, which have been uh, resistant to expanding Medicaid. Medicaid was expanded through. Uh, the referendum because that's what people wanted. Uh, others where the minimum wage has been increased, and so I mean, Chris's point here is that uh, states that have referendums are often able to adopt policies closer to what their voters want. Right. Uh, that is true. Mm-hmm. It's also true what we were talking about in that last episode, which is that this process can be overtaken mm-hmm. uh, by uh, by narrow interests yeah. and that and, and that initiative. <laughs>
1: Which kind of kind of right. gets us around in a very strong well,
0: circuit. also that initiative and referendum uh, motions can be written in ways that are very confusing mm-hmm. and difficult for people to understand, but at other times it can be quite simple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yes, yeah, so his point is well taken there. direct democracy is a is a way that can keep uh, policy closer to what the people want because you're not getting office holders who are perhaps corrupted by campaign contributions or what wherever the party wherever the party uh, party goals are. Uh, to be able to uh, affect changes that might have something to do with inequality so yeah there's a there's a hunger for it as un- inequality increases we, we only see more of that
1: right and 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 it can
0: also often lead to you know somewhat authoritarian populist outcomes too
1: sure I mean there's a there's a um, and that was that was FDR's argument right that if we don't address this through well if we don't save capitalism right. we're to lose it precisely yeah. and what's going to come come n- instead is likely to be authoritarian and, and undermine freedom. So if you know, if you the plutocrats of New York and throughout the rest of you know 1930s America, if that's not what you want, then you need to back these kind of movements to increase inequality or uh, to combat inequality. Yes, to let off steam. If exactly else. right, yeah. you know, you see you know this kind of Gilded Age where the inequality was extremely high, and then after um, you know World War One and the Great Depression, World War II, and then the years shortly thereafter, inequality or inequality was addressed, and it went down. And now you're going up, and so you know you just wonder if it's not almost there's just this natural kind of reaction and counter reaction, and where where you can see on the horizon this kind of counter reaction coming. What do you think of that? <laughs>
0: I'm skeptical of anything that says there are actually natural reactions to. Uh, th- there's no reason that inequality can't keep on growing.
1: Well, n- and if, if and, Aristotle's and that the right, then that's po- not
0: true. But the political tools can be developed to suppress
1: democracy. Yes,
0: and therefore not have to respond. Okay, to it. fair enough. Yeah. But
1: uh, but I mean, if there, you know, if we remain a democracy and if we remain. Um, if that remains a mechanism for the free and fair expression of the will of the electorate, then it does make sense that um, this rising inequality is going to manifest um, change in the, elect- in the in the in the population. Yes,
0: and certainly you get the sense that this just can't keep on going this way. That it's just this sort of massive inequality, getting more massive all the time, mm-hmm. getting more dramatic, uh, more exaggerated, it is just going to, at some point, either have to be addressed or is going to have... Something's going to give. Something's going to give.
1: So what's, you know, w- you know, whenever there's a crisis, you know, it's either dealt with successfully or it isn't. And if it isn't, then you open the door to more dramatic and more, um, well, let's face it, Terrifying prospects. And so, you know, that's where we are now, right? It's, it's an interesting time. And the, the, the condition, the extent, the extremity of, of inequality in American society is, is what's at issue
0: here. Well, and to a certain extent, what the, the work of uh, Chris Whitgo allows us to do is to look across states. At, uh, some states have addressed inequality more than others, and some states' inequality is more of a problem than others, and we can see what the consequences are.
1: Yeah, and hence
0: the laboratories of democracy.
1: Absolutely, and okay. so this is this is a you know a, a really good issue for us. It's not one we're gonna we're gonna put down. It's one that we want to keep uh, addressing. But what uh, Chris Wickow has done, in addition to really doing a great job of representing this new school of public policy, is to give us an, an insight into um, how these is- issues are addressed, uh, given the reality of of hyper-partisanship at the federal level.
0: Well, and certainly they're going to be fought out within the Democratic primaries in 2020. Uh, Within the Republican Party, less talk about inequality. Donald Trump did used to talk about it, but he hasn't pursued a populist economic program. So... Kind of hard to
1: say right now where that means. He we'll, would see, be, we'll see. You we'll know, see, won't we? If he were a candidate in 2020. right and and you know yeah. and I I'm, I I think I've heard like Marco Rubio for example make these kind of uh, inroads. So I do think that there is a kind of uh, widening awareness that this has to be addressed.
0: I suppose, but they're they're going to have to figure out a way to address both the support for tax cuts that are aimed generally at those with
1: the most money and a concern with inequality. You really can't have both, no doubt, and and that is as good a note as any on which to end. So, uh, again, to be continued. These these issues are not going away, and they're they're fascinating and 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 worth our time. So, from the campus of Penn State University and the studios of WPSU, this has been Democracy Works. I'm Chris Beam, and I'm Michael Berkman. Thanks for listening.
2: Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State. Our hosts are Michael Berkman, Chris Beam, and me, Jenna Spinelli. Andy Grant is our engineer, and Mark Stitzer is our editor. Additional support comes from Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For detailed show notes and discussion questions for each episode, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please consider rating or reviewing us wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.